Exodus chapter 9, 13 to 35, and then we will read most of chapter 10, starting verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Well, this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord, hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of God, the word of the Lord, left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that the hail will fall all over Egypt, on people and on animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail, and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I have, and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You do not have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail. So you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord, God. The flax and barley were destroyed since the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripen later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands towards the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians. Something neither you, neither your parents, nor your ancestors have ever seen from the day that they settled in this land till now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials said to him, 
How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go, so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go, worship the Lord your God, he said, but tell me who will be going. Moses answered, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, and with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you. If I let you go, along with your women and children, clearly you are bent on evil. No, let only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you have been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over Egypt, so that the locusts swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on a tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go, worship the Lord, even your women and children may go with you, only leave the flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Our God and our Father, as we come now around your word, we pray that by your grace and mercy, you might lift the veil from our eyes, that all that might distract, that all that might take us away, from hearing from you and responding in faith. We pray that you would take it away. We ask that you would show us more of your glory. We ask that we might uh, behold that glory, receive it and respond rightly to it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, facts that is often shared about Uh, spoken communication is that you have uh, around 30 seconds or so to grab people's attention before they tune out. And that's something of a uh, scary thing to think about as a communicator, (laughs) that you have that little window of time. And one of the things that sometimes people do to try and grab attention is speak about why something matters, why it's so very important. And whilst we don't always want to jump straight to that, It is an important question, isn't it, whenever we come around God's word, because 
God's Word is given to us to teach us so that our, we might know more of God, so it is to grow our knowledge, but also so that we might respond rightly, so that it might make a difference in our lives, as Rich was, pra- was praying, because all Christian doctrine is practical, ultimately, isn't it? The Christian faith is a lived-out faith. And over the last few weeks, as we have worked through uh, those first uh, plagues, one through to six, we have seen many truths about who God is. And it's all been under this big umbrella of he is the Lord, that he is the Lord. He comes first. He is, he's the king of the universe. He has no rivals. He is the one true and living God. And this week, we're going to jump in to that very question of, so what? What difference does it make that the Lord, our God, is Lord? Lord, Because as we come into this final set of three plagues, plagues seven to nine, these plagues that come from the sky upon Egypt, I'm sure we notice in the reading that there was a significant intensification, wasn't there? There was a significant shift in the seriousness, in the, in, the, in the gravity of the things that the Egyptians face, the judgment that comes upon them. And it's true that the story is building to a climax. The narrative is moving forward to a great focus. And of course, it will be in that final plague, in the midst of that very plague, the Israelites are brought out of Egypt. They are rescued from captivity to Pharaoh. They are freed, as the Lord says, by his mighty hand. And God has been showing his hand at work until fully and finally he will work in that tenth plague. But before we come to that tenth plague, we are going to work through these plagues seven, eight, and nine to see three implications, three outworkings of what it means that he is the Lord. Three practical implications for our lives today that teach us how we should respond rightly to what we have been seeing about the Lord, because there's lots of things in these, these plagues that we've seen before. We're not going to go over that, um, but the significant things, particularly in these three of seven to nine, is the way in which those practical implications come to us even more clearly. So we have three things to see this morning. Because he is the Lord, we're going to see three letters, statements, three letters respond in this way to him. So because he is the Lord, let us keep him central. Because he is the Lord, let us, our first point, Keep him central. And here we see that the ultimate and central place of God is above and before everything. That he is utterly supreme and that that is right and good and proper. So as we jump into the seventh plague, you'll have noticed there in that plague of the hail, beginning there in chapter 9 and verse 13, that the the introduction is unusually long. There in verse 13, we have the command that has been given to Pharaoh again and again and again, let my people go that they may worship me. But then in verse 14, you get a warning that the coming plagues, and this is a sense of intensification, are going to get worse. That it's going to get even more serious for Egypt. The Lord says, you will feel the full force, verse 14, of my plagues against you and against your officials and against your people. And the repeated reason that we've seen before at the end of verse 14 is so that you may know, the Lord says, that there is no one like me in all the earth. So that repeated thought of that the Lord alone is God. He is supreme. And then in verse 15, God says, well, through Moses, um, that, that the Lord could have wiped Pharaoh off the earth in one moment. He had that power 
He had that prerogative. It was his right to do that, given Pharaoh's sin and rebellion. But God, verse 16, has raised him up. He has permitted his evil resistance so that, end of verse 16, for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So we've taught before about God demonstrating his power through these plagues, but did you notice what was new there? End of verse 16. That the Lord's name might be proclaimed. Now God's name isn't just his title. It's not just the way in which he is addressed. His name communicates things about him. It stands for his character. It stands for his person. It stands for his identity. And so, as the Lord says that through these plagues, his name will be proclaimed, what is being communicated here is that God, in all that he is, might be worshipped for who he is, might be central, not just declared, but worshipped, and and you might say lauded, he might be honoured. And so we can say that the gradual progression of the plagues, rather than the immediate destruction of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and so Pharaoh's resistance to that, and God overcoming him, shows two things here, end of verse 16. It shows God's power, and it proclaims his name in all the earth. Not just to a few, but to all the world. So let's just see how that works out. As we look through the rest of the account of the plague of the hail, of course, this is no ordinary hailstorm, is it? You've been through a hailstorm. It's not a pleasant thing. It slightly, can be slightly scary. It's noisy. But this is no ordinary hailstorm. There is thunder. There is lightning. There is hail, verse 23. It strikes everything in the fields, the people... The animals, the crops, and the trees. And verse 24 is key because there we are told that this hailstorm is the worst that Egypt has ever seen since it was founded as a nation. Now, Egypt, we think, was founded around 3100 BC. And so, if this Exodus event is around 1600 years later, that's 1500 BC, it's a huge period of time, 1600 years. They have never seen anything like this. And so God's name is proclaimed both in the intensity of the storm, but also, the text tells us, in the fact that Goshen is protected, the place where the Israelites live. And also, you've got the intensity of the storm, you've got Goshen protected, and you also have the storm stopping exactly when Moses prays that it would. Three ways in which God's name is proclaimed through the plague of the hell. But the similar thing happens with the plague of the locusts, plague number eight, because you get a similar idea as we jump into chapter 10 with a slightly different audience. Because if you look down at verse two, God is going to perform this sign that you may tell your children and grandchildren how, har- how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my, sign among, my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. Now, just as you heard it in verse 2, that statement, how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, might have, you thought, oh, what does that mean? Um, a better translation of the word there is how I humiliated the Egyptians. And that mirrors what the Lord says in verse 3 when he speaks to Pharaoh, speaks about Pharaoh, uh, sorry, when Moses goes before Pharaoh and he says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? So because Pharaoh will not humble himself, God will humble Pharaoh through these plagues. And as we've worked through the plagues, we've often noticed that there is there are echoes or parallels to what Pharaoh did to the Israelites and how God responds to the Egyptians. And right back in chapter 1, in verses 11 and 12, when Pharaoh put the 
uh, Hebrews under slave masters, it's the same word there in verse 11 and 12, that he did so uh, so that they uh, might be oppressed. Start at verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Uh, And verse 11, he put slave masters over them to oppress them. This idea of oppressing is humbling. So, so, So Pharaoh was trying to humble the Israelites, God's people, He was trying to assert that that was his role, his place. But God is saying, no, I'm going to humble you, Pharaoh. That's where we understand that word, to to deal harshly in that sense. It's the humbling of Pharaoh. And the reason for that is so that, verse 2, the generations to come, the children and the grandchildren, might know that the Lord is the Lord God. So the stories might be passed on. So that they might hear these true events, and believe them by faith as well. And just in passing, that reminds us of how very important it is that we teach these stories, this true history, to our children, along with the implications of it as well. Not to scare them, but let's also be careful we don't tell the Disney version either. Let's communicate God's truth as it is given with all the carefulness with which we find it in the Scriptures, so that our children can understand these things and believe that he is the Lord. Now, as we jump into this eighth plague of the locusts, what do we see? Well, we see in in verse 14, the way it's described, that when it comes, that these locusts, chapter 11 and verse 14, invade Egypt, and they are everywhere. They eat up whatever the hail has left, which wasn't very much. But they consume it. And their coverage is so extensive, verse 15, that they covered the ground until it was black. If you're not a fan of insects, you may not want to visualize this. But just think. Well, forgive me, so I've attached you to. But imagine what it might have been like. But why the darkness there in verse 15? Well, well darkness, as we're going to see, is, is a sign of, of, of sin and judgment. It's a sign of the total desolation that is coming upon Egypt. And God does all of this. He sends the hail, he sends the locusts, so that Pharaoh, Egypt, and his people might know who he is that they might know that he is the Lord and that they might proclaim his name and his name might be proclaimed. So so the plagues in that sense are a a demonstration of God's greatness and a a, a proclaiming of God as God. That's what we're being told here. God is showing this. He is declaring this through these plagues. And that reminds us, and here's the implication for us as we respond to it, that it is right that God's name is proclaimed and made known. It is right that he is central in all things. You know, when any human, mere human, seeks self-aggrandizement, that's inappropriate and, and it's unpleasant to see, isn't it? It's not fitting respond with, with a sense of revulsion that someone is trying to make more of themselves than they should. But that is not the case with God. God is glorified because God is glorious, because God is central. And so whilst it be wrong for any mere human to do this, it is right for God to do this because, because he is the center of the universe. He is worthy of all praise. Pharaoh had wrongly sought to put himself at the center, and God was humbling him. And so that he and none of the Lord's people may think too highly of any mere human, God humbles Pharaoh, but the Lord is at the center, and that's why he does this. He he is the sun around which the galaxy of reality rotates. He is the Lord. He is central. 
And in contrast, that means for us that we are not the center of this world. We are not the center of the universe. But there are times when we can behave like we are. We want everything our way. We think that our plans are are the right plans. And sometimes God works in situations to humble us. And that's a good thing, friends, where we remember that he is central and we are not. A, A godly response to that is to recognize what the Lord is teaching us in that, to bow before the Lord rightly and to confess our sinful self centeredness. But to be even more practical, seeing the Lord is at the center changes our interactions together as the Lord's people. Words like, I want, I should have, I must be given, betray a self-centered heart. And friends, we must stop our power plays when we stand before the Lord. Because God alone should be honored. Maybe the next time that you have a disagreement with another Christian or or a conflict over something with another believer, try to stop thinking about what you want because that's putting it you at the center of the universe, isn't it? And instead say, what does God want? How can I please him in this interaction? What would proclaim his name rather than mine? It goes even further than that, because as we think perhaps about holding grudges, what do we do when we hold a grudge? Well, at a heart level, a grudge is about self-centeredness. Because... We're saying that we need to carry something. We need to be able to bring it up again in the future so that we can get even or so that we ourselves can put it right. Now, there are right times where we speak to one another about how we may have sinned against each other. That's a right thing. But we don't carry grudges. We seek to have genuine repentance and forgiveness towards one another. And in that way, in that way, we proclaim the name of the Lord. He is the Lord. Let us keep him central. That's our first thing. Secondly, he is the Lord. So let us come with true repentance. Our second point, come with true repentance. And here we see that we must be genuine and real before the Lord, offering true repentance. And the person who shows us How we shouldn't come before the Lord is Pharaoh. Once more, he is the bad example for us because there, after the plague of the hail, verse 27, he responds. And if you look down in chapter 9 and verse 27, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, This time I have sinned. He said to them, The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Now you read that and you think, Wow, this is good. This is really good. Pharaoh seems to be saying something that's, that he's not said before. But it's not quite as good, perhaps, as it might appear on a first read. That word um, where he says, um, I have sinned, could probably uh, be uh, better um, translated, I have been unfair, rather than I have sinned. I have been unfair. And it's not true repentance because as we look at what Pharaoh says here in verse 27, in his words, he doesn't bring a confession of true and deep sin. What he does is he says, I've been unfair. So he recognizes he's got something wrong, but he doesn't really come in his words in repentance. But also notice he doesn't come with repentance in the extent of what he says because he says, I have done wrong this time. Notice that, the concession, this time. Not talking about anything before, very specific. And then also verse 28 tells us the reason for his words are not that he is broken before God, but what? He's had enough of the plague. He's had enough of the hail. 
So it's not a genuine turning that has a desire to change. And Moses knows that because in verse 30 he says, I know that you don't really fear the Lord. And that insight that he has is confirmed by Pharaoh's reaction in verse 34. Because when Moses then goes and prays before the Lord that the hail would be removed, it happens. And then what do we see in verse 34? Pharaoh doesn't keep his word. Pharaoh stays. He sinned again. He hardens, he and his officials harden their hearts, and he would not let the Israelites go. So you see this sense of a, of a, of a, a false, non-genuine repentance there in the plague of the hail. But also, the same thing happens in the response to the plague of the locusts. But if you jump into chapter 10 and verses 16 and 17, there you have Pharaoh's response again to the plague. And there he says, Uh, Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. So notice he says, I have sinned against the Lord your God and you. So there seems to be a little bit more here in Pharaoh. But notice once again that he is interested ultimately in relief from the judgment, verse 17. Just like with the hail, he wants to be free from the locusts. He is not coming in happy submission and contrition before the Lord's. He just wants the plague gone again. And Pharaoh is a warning to all of us that if the Lord is the Lord then we should come before him not with false, shallow repentance, but rather with true, heartfelt repentance before him. Now, what does true repentance look like? Here's six things that that characterize true repentance. And don't feel you have to get them all down, just, just hear them. True repentance, first and foremost, recognizes that sin is an offense against God. True repentance is willing to confess sin freely and does not consciously hold anything back in that confession. True repentance doesn't claim the right to be forgiven, but rather pleads mercy that the Lord might forgive. You know, it's like the prodigal son when he returns to the master. What does he say? He says, I've I've sinned and I do not deserve to be called your son. He doesn't say you have to take me back. Expect forgiveness in that sense, but, but trust that, that God would show mercy. True repentance also is not just interested in freedom from judgment, but ultimately reconciliation with God. A couple of weeks ago, James, uh, or last, uh, last Sunday evening, I think it was, James was speaking about this sense of 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 faith in Christ just being a ticket to heaven and a way of avoiding judgment. And Christ secures heaven for us. Christ frees us from judgment. But true repentance is about wanting more than that. It's wanting reconciliation with the God of heaven before whom we have sinned. And then, fifthly, true repentance resolves to turn from sin. Now, repentance is a change of mind. That is what it is. But that will be seen in life. And then also, true repentance, sixthly, becomes a a daily part of the believer's life. We live a life of repentance as a Christian. And so that is true repentance. And, And saving faith is not without true repentance. Because faith means turning. Faith means turning from everything, including our sin, leaving it and saying, I don't want that anymore, Lord. I don't want to trust in that. I don't want to live for that. I want to live for you and you alone. And because he is the Lord, because he is the Lord, we must be real before the Lord. We must bring this true repentance My friends, we rejoice. Please don't misunderstand. We rejoice because Christ Jesus has met the perfect demands of God's law. 
He has done everything. If you're a Christian today, if you're trusting in him, if you have turned from your sin in that repentant heart, your confidence today can be that you are right with God because of Jesus Christ. And our actions do not make us right with God. But true repentance and faith leads to a change in life. Christ calls us, Mark 1 verse 15, to repent and believe. That's what it means to trust him. So why does this matter? Now here's why it matters, friends. And this is the second way in which Pharaoh is such a serious example to us. Not only does he show us the the danger of a shallow repentance, the Lord's interactions with Pharaoh warn us that we should not test God's patience. God's mercy is for a season. But we dare not test his patience. You know, there are some who hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, who know that it's true, and yet want to put it off. And that's what Pharaoh does here. But just as the plagues progress, two things happen here. As we go through to these final plagues, two things happen. First of all, the window closes for Pharaoh to respond. And then also, God's words to Pharaoh become briefer and briefer until he says no more. see that in the hail. The the Lord speaks to Pharaoh at the start of the plague of the hail, says the same command that he has been saying all the way through, and there is a solemn warning from Moses that Pharaoh doesn't really fear the Lord. It's a warning. It's a seriousness. It's saying, the window is closing. Don't leave this. And then you see it in the locusts as well, the plague of the locusts, because that plague begins with the last time that God will make the command to let the people go. It's the last time it's said. And then the plague comes. Pharaoh asks for relief. Moses prays to God. God shows mercy in lifting the plague, but then there are no further warnings about repentance and fear. And then as you come to the plague of the darkness, what happens? No further word from the Lord to Pharaoh. Do you see the pattern, friends? The pattern shows us that there is a window to repent and that window will one day close. I can't tell you when that will be. The Lord has numbered your days. But we should not test the patience of God in delaying turning to him. I don't know if you saw the story this week of horribly sad story of one of the workers on an aeroplane. And the plane uh, was coming in from the runway to offload the passengers and the luggage, came up to the gate, and I don't know all the the details, but for whatever reason, they needed to leave the engines on on the plane. And uh, they left the engines on, didn't switch them off straight away, and sadly, one of the workers who worked offloading the plane was killed, dragged into an engine. What came out was that just prior to the event, they had had a safety briefing about how they should act safely around the plane. And they'd done all the right things. They had put a special marker on the edge of the plane or on the ground to indicate the engine was still running. So all the warnings were there. And tragically, sadly, the person lost their life. Didn't heed the warnings. God is not required to warn us. He could just judge without any warning. That would be just, friends, because we have sinned. But he does warn us out of his overflowing kindness so that no one will be able to say, I didn't get a warning. And the kindness of God is that we are here today We are hearing his word. 
God, through his word and by his spirit, in this very moment, is calling you to repent. Not me. Not the person sat next to you. The God of heaven and earth is calling you to repent. And none of us should count on a further opportunity. Instead, we should respond in faith. We should respond, as we see in some way pictured in a way that during that, before that plague of the hail comes down, something new happens there in the narrative because God says, this is what you must do to avoid the hail. That doesn't happen, I think, until this point. But it happens here, and some of the officials heed the warning. They bring their animals and their slaves in from the field so that they are not destroyed by the hail. We read in verse 20 that some of the officials of Pharaoh, the word is is striking, they feared the Lord and they hurried. Do you get that? They hurried to act. And God has told us what we need to do to repent and believe. He has sent his son so that we might trust him before the darkness comes of his judgment for eternity. And we see that pictured as we move on uh, to the plague of the darkness because what an event there at the end of chapter 10. Over all of Egypt, three days of darkness. And maybe you heard the story of Ernest Shackleton and the, ex- and the expedition to the Antarctic in 1914. And they got there to the Antarctic and the, 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 um, the ice closed in on them. They couldn't get away. They had to wait for it to thaw. And so they have to spend months in the Arctic. But they said that one of the hardest things about their time in the Arctic was that from early May to July, the sun didn't rise. And it was said that the darkness drove some of the men mad. And there in Egypt, for those three days, there is no sun by day, no stars and moon by night. The people couldn't leave their homes. They've, they've only got lamps. They had to stay in, little, can, little um, oil lamps probably. And it's a kind of darkness that can be felt. That is how oppressive it is upon Egypt. But once again, don't miss it, friends. Where is it where there is no darkness? There in Goshen, God's people have light. And that darkness there of the plague that comes, that ninth plague, points forward to the coming judgment of God upon those who do not repent and believe, but it also points forward to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because remember that there when the Lord Jesus died, in those three hours of darkness, parallel to the three days of darkness here, where the spotless Son of God there hung at Calvary. He knew the sin and judgment for his people. He went through the pain. He went through the suffering. He went through the anguish that we should face so that by faith in him, we might know the light of life. Friends, will you come to him? Will you believe on him? Will you come with that true repentance and that true faith to receive that gift of forgiveness? And don't delay, because delay is dangerous. He is the Lord. Let us keep him central. He is the Lord. Let us come with true repentance. And then thirdly and and briefly, he is the Lord. So let us offer total worship to him. Let us offer total worship, our third point. And here we come to the bargaining that goes on between Pharaoh and between Moses. And again, we see Pharaoh trying to offer something less than God has commanded. And we see Moses saying, no, that's not acceptable. And we see see here that all of us should worship with all that we have. This idea of total worship. All of us should worship with all that we have. As As we go into the plague of the locusts again, we see that negotiations begin between Pharaoh and Moses. And in chapter 10 and verse 8, Pharaoh comes and he says, you can go and worship the Lord, but who's going to go? And Moses' reply, verse 9, is that all the people are going to go. We're all going to go and worship. He says, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Exactly what God has commanded. Moses is not negotiating any sense. But what does Pharaoh come back with? Verse 11, he says, well, let the men go and the women and children can stay. So what's he doing here? Well, Pharaoh wants to keep hostages, doesn't he? 
He wants to make sure they come back. And so he says, well, the men can go and worship, but we'll keep the families back. We'll keep the women and children here in Egypt. Now, the Egyptians themselves may have accepted that because maybe they thought, well, it would be enough for the men to go and worship. And there are some religions where only the men need to worship and pray. But that's not biblical Christianity. It's not acceptable to Moses. He says, no, we will all go because God has commanded that we all will worship because we are all his people. You see that, friends, that men, women, and children who are trusting in the Lord are the people of God. So we should all be free and therefore encouraged to worship. Because we are all image bearers, and we all can know God equally by faith. This reminds us that, that as we worship, we come as all of the Lord's people in that sense. And it's right that we worship the Lord all together. So it's important, as, as we are, that we're clear that at the start of the service, in that time when, when everyone's in, that is for all of us as we worship. It is for the children as well before they go out to crash into Sunday school. Now, I know that can be challenging. It can be challenging for parents because we need to gently encourage our children to join in worship in that sense. It might mean in that period of time that as parents, you might be able to focus less personally, but you're encouraging your children to engage in worship, and that's a good thing. It might mean that we all need to cope with wriggling and noise. That's okay. It's a good thing that they're with us. We want them to feel that this is for them. We do not want to be saying, this is not for you. What is coming is for you. We want to say all of this is for you, including what we do together at the start of the service. It's not just for the adults. We are all participants. We are not observers. Because all God's people should worship. And then, ask, then we also see that we all should worship with all that we have. All God's people should worship with all that we have. And here we come finally to the, the darkness plague, uh, number nine. And, and there there's a negotiation in 10 and verse 24, an attempt at negotiation from Pharaoh where Pharaoh says, well, you can go and worship the Lord and your children and your wives can come as well. Everyone can go. But just leave the flocks. He says, verse 24, even your women and children may go with you. That's the wording. Only leave your flocks and your herds behind. And what's Moses' reply? No, that's not acceptable. Why? Because God has commanded that we will all leave, and love the detail, middle of the verse, not a hoof will be left behind. What's Pharaoh trying to do? Pharaoh is trying to get the Israelites to withhold something from the Lord in worship. He's trying to hold something back, and it's his power play again, isn't it? (laughs) He's right back to doing what he's been doing all the way through, because he's trying to show that he can determine and dictate the terms by which the Israelites will worship, and Moses is not going to let him. If they hold back anything, Pharaoh has won. And so we need to be able and we need to bring whatever God commands, Moses says, as an offering. We cannot keep anything back. So we will go, all of us, we will go with all that we have and we will go to worship the Lord. And so friends, this reminds us that God's people are called to worship him with everything. Pharaoh wants us to keep things back. The world says keep things back. The devil says, hold things back. But we don't hold back because we belong to him. And if you've got hold of this book, the the New City Catechism devotional, we mentioned it when we started the the bite-sized true spots at the start of the services. Um, You can get it on the app as well, but I was just struck in reading the first question What is our only hope in life and in death that we are not our own, but belong, body, soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ? And then in the commentary here, as it reminds us that 
that we come with everything to the Lord to worship. What do we read? Well, this is Calvin's comment. We are not our own. We belong to him. We are his people. So, as far as we can, let us forget ourselves and all that is ours. Don't keep hold of it. Conversely, we are God's. Let us therefore live for him. And Calvin writes, die for him. And then Timothy Keller, explaining Calvin's words in modern English, as we're so thankful that he does, he says, the basic principle then is this, that we are not to live to please ourselves. We are not to live as if we belong to ourselves. We're not to hold anything back, friends. We're to bring it all to him. Because those over whom the Lord pronounces my people by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ must devote all that they are to him. And so, friends, as we close, can I ask you, where are we tempted to withhold something from the Lord? Satan knows where our weaknesses lie. And he'll whisper so many good reasons for why we can't bring the things that we don't want to bring before the Lord. He'll say, you know, you can worship him and you don't have to bring that to him. He doesn't need to be sovereign over that. You can keep it back, just like Pharaoh was doing. Don't take everything with you. Friends, redemption means God's exodus of us. His bringing us out of Egypt in bondage and rebellion into the kingdom of light and his son means that he owns us. It means that we are his. And it means all that we have, we bring to him. So don't hold back because he is the Lord. Let us keep him central. Let us come with true repentance. Let us offer total worship.